Sometimes when our family sits down together for dinner, we like to play these games where we give each other hypothetical scenarios of, of different sorts, would you rather, those sorts of things. One of the games that, that we have played before is we ask uh, if our house was on fire. Now, it's not very nice hypothetical, but if our house was on fire and you could only save one thing and we give the stipulation that the whole family is safe, you know, so we don't need to save each other in this scenario, but you could save only one thing in the house, what would it be? And we'll hear different answers. And you, you hear different kinds of answers in this question. Sometimes someone might choose just the most expensive thing in the house, like maybe an instrument or, or some really fancy electronic device. Uh, that's what they choose. Some people would go a different route and choose something very sentimental, like a baby blanket or, or, the, or their first deer head that they killed. Right? Maybe you would choose to say the most functional thing in your house, like a phone or a computer, uh, but, but whatever it is you choose in that game, your choice reveals to some extent what you really value, right? It reveals to some extent what you treasure. But here's the thing, is that we human beings are very poor at picking our treasures. You know, this begins when we're very young. It, it, parents, you know this. It's absolutely amazing what you will find in a child's treasure collection of things that they've discovered in the backyard. But do you know what? We don't really get much better at it as we get older. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned against storing up treasures that are vulnerable to things like moth and rust and thieves. Why did he warn us about that? Well, because that's what we tend to do. We make treasures out of things that are not worth treasuring. We make treasures out of things that are vulnerable and temporary. Like a child who needs a parent to explain that this gold-colored candy wrapper doesn't actually have the value of gold, we too need someone to help us see what is really worth treasuring and what is not. We need that help as well. You can open your Bibles now to Matthew 13. We're continuing our series through Matthew called Following the Fulfillment. And our passage this morning is Matthew 13, verses 44 through 50. Matthew 13, 44 through 50. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the parables of Jesus in Matthew 13. Parables were illustrations and stories that used familiar things from earth in order to teach mysterious truths about the kingdom of God. And over the last few weeks, here are some things that we've seen about the kingdom through the parables of Jesus. We saw in the parable of the sower that Jesus taught on the word of the kingdom and he explained the mystery of why only some people receive the message of the kingdom while many others reject it. And then we saw last week the parables of the wheat and the mustard seed and the leaven and through these parables Jesus explained how the kingdom comes and how it comes much differently than the disciples were expecting it to come. Well, today we look at three more parables, and and what we're going to see today is another kingdom theme that couldn't be any more significant. What we're going to see today is who is included in this kingdom. Who is included in the kingdom of God? Who gets to be a part of the kingdom of God? That's what we're going to discover this morning, and what we'll see is that the answer is entirely related to what we treasure. Let's read the passage, it's Matthew 13, verses 44 through 50. 
The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Three parables this morning. The first two go together, and then there's a third to look at as well. This morning we're going to see three things from these parables and from the one who gave them Jesus Christ. Three truths that we need to take away from these parables this morning. The first thing we need to see is the incomparable value of the kingdom. The incomparable value of the kingdom. We see this in verses 44 through 46. The incomparable value of the kingdom. Verses 44 through 46 give us two parables that belong together. They're nearly identical illustrations of the same truth. Let's look at them one at a time, though. In the first parable, we see a man in a field. Verse 44, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So we see a man in a field. He's probably working that field in some capacity. And as he's working, he comes upon something in the ground, which we see is a treasure. Yesterday we were digging out some posts from the old backstop in the field during the workday. Can you guys that were doing that just imagine if we were digging our shovels in and and uh, we hit a thud in the ground, and how exciting it would be if we were the ones to discover the legendary treasure of Friendship Road, the legendary treasure of Wolf Skull Creek. That's what happens to this man. He finds a treasure buried in a field. I mean, how exciting is that, right? He finds a treasure buried in the field. Now today, when we think of buried treasure, we automatically think of pirates and adventures and a a map where X marks the spot, right? But there was a more familiar background to the readers than this. If someone living at this time had something of immense value in their possession, we got to remember, they couldn't go to a bank for safekeeping. They they, they didn't have the, the ways to keep things safe that we have today. And so what would they do? Well, they would bury it. This was so commonplace, in fact, that when the Romans conquered Jerusalem, the Roman soldiers actually looked for buried treasures in the fields of the Jews. Now, what would happen with a treasure that was buried if the person who buried it died or was taken away in a war or something like that? Well, if no one else knew about it, then that treasure would just remain buried until someone discovered it. So so a buried treasure wasn't a completely foreign concept, but it was still very rare to actually find one. Kind of like winning the lottery today. It happens to some people somewhere, but very rare that it does. That's the background here. But here's the problem. This man finds this treasure, and yet he's not legally authorized to claim this treasure as his own. It's part of the property that he's on. So what does he he do? He decides, I should buy the field If the field's mine, then the treasure's mine. But this raises another problem, which is I can't afford the field. 
I don't, I don't have enough to buy this field. So look again at what he does in verse 44. It says, he covered it up, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In order to buy the field and gain the treasure he's found, the man sells everything he has. He sells any property he owns. He sells his livestock. He sells his material goods. He sells it all to the point that he has absolutely nothing left. And I want us to picture this moment as an onlooker. This moment after he sold everything that he has, but before he has purchased the field, to an onlooker, this man has nothing. To the onlooker, this man is nothing but a poor fool. But he knows, he knows that he's about to gain everything. And therefore, he has joy in this action. He has joy in selling it all. His joy is not in losing all he has, but rather in losing all he has in order to gain something far better than he ever could have dreamed. And Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he tells another parable, verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So very similar parable. In the first parable, the man stumbled upon the treasure by happy coincidence. But in the second parable, we have a pearl merchant who's actively searching for valuable pearls to sell. And one day, this merchant comes upon the pearl of all pearls. This pearl he finds is so immensely valuable that it is worth more to him than all that he has gained through his whole career as a pearl merchant. He, he decides to do the same thing to get this pearl. He goes and he sells everything he has and he buys this one precious pearl, which is worth more than everything he had accumulated up to this point. And again, Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. These first two parables teach a simple principle. We state it like this. The kingdom is so incomparably valuable that it is worth losing everything to gain. The kingdom is so incomparably valuable that it is worth losing everything to gain. The kingdom is the treasure hidden in the field. The kingdom is the pearl of all pearls. Here is something of true value. Here is something worth treasuring. The kingdom of God. The kingdom is what is so valuable in these parables. But we need to ask, what is it about the kingdom that makes it so incomparably valuable? Why is the kingdom so valuable? Is it that we get to live forever? That sounds good, right? Is it that we get to be reunited with loved ones who have died? Is it the luxury, just the mere luxury of pearly gates and streets of gold? Is it simply that it's a better alternative than hell? What makes the kingdom an incomparable treasure? Well, if we listen to the testimony of God's people in Scripture, then what makes the kingdom so incomparably valuable is the presence of the king. It's the presence of the king. There's no better place to see this truth than in the book of Psalms. Just listen to some psalmists describe the joy of the presence of God. Here's King David in Psalm 1611. He said, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
Or listen to the words of Asaph in Psalm 33. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Or listen to the words of the sons of Korah in Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Over and over and over again, this is the affirmation of God's people. There is nothing better than being in the presence of God. There is nothing more joyful. There is nothing that I desire more than God himself. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's the testimony of God's people. And this is what makes the kingdom of God so incomparably valuable, is that the kingdom of God is where we can be truly and fully and forever in the presence of God. This is what we were made for, and nothing else can satisfy us. There is no treasure that is comparable to this treasure. And so when we say that the kingdom is incomparably valuable, what we're really saying is that God himself is incomparably valuable. He is the king of the kingdom that we receive in receiving the kingdom. And I just want to ask this morning, have you ever considered the invitation of the gospel along these lines? The gospel is not merely a call to be saved. The gospel is not merely a way to be forgiven. The gospel is not merely a way to go to heaven when you die. Let me ask, why do you want to be saved? Why do you want to be forgiven? Who cares about forgiveness? What's the point of forgiveness? Here's the point is that through forgiveness, we get God. Through forgiveness, we get to be with Him. We want to be saved because salvation is being reconciled to our Creator, being brought back to His presence, what we are made for. This is why we want to go to heaven, because God is there. The gospel is the proclamation that the greatest treasure in all the universe is God himself. And the gospel is the invitation to experience ultimate and everlasting joy in the presence of God. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is of incomparable value. That's the first truth that we need to take in today. The kingdom of heaven is incomparably valuable. Second, we need to see this, the uncompromising standard of the kingdom. We've seen the incomparable value of the kingdom, now the uncompromising standard of the kingdom. We see this in the, in the, second, or the third parable, verses 47 and 48. The uncompromising standard of the kingdom. Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So this parable introduces us to the realm of fishing, which would have been a very familiar theme for the disciples from Galilee. The common way for fishermen to catch fish was to cast a large dragnet between two boats that would then capture all the fish that were swimming in between them. And so they would bring the net to shore with all the fish in it, but something had to happen before they could begin selling these fish. They needed to sort the good fish from the bad fish. See, if they were going to have a successful business, this was crucial, right? By nature of the net catching everything in its path, it was bound to include fish that no one wanted to eat, fish that weren't any good. And so the standard of a fisherman was that we're going to go through this net, and we're going to get rid of all the bad fish, and we're going to store the good fish, and we're going to sell the good fish only. All the others were simply thrown away. 
That's the parable. That's the familiar that Jesus brings to the people. Now, in what way is the kingdom of heaven like this? And Jesus actually gives the interpretation in verses 49 and 50. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here we see this parable as a picture of final judgment. Just as all kinds of fish were caught in the net, so all people from all time and all places will be gathered by God's angels for judgment. History, according to the Bible, does not go on forever, but it moves toward this day of judgment. And just as the fishermen needed to sort out the good from the bad, so on that day of judgment, a great sorting will take place between those who are righteous and those who are evil. Every person who ever lived will be in one of those two categories. Each one of us this morning will be in one of those two categories. You will either be part of the righteous or you will be part of the evil. There is no in-between on Judgment Day. Those who are righteous will be included in the kingdom of God. But those who are evil, Jesus says, will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, we saw in the first parables that the kingdom of heaven is an incomparable treasure. But here we see that hell is an agonizing punishment. The imagery Jesus uses paints a picture of excruciating pain and sorrow. Fiery furnace, weeping, gnashing of teeth. But I want to ask, what is it about hell that makes it so awful? Why exactly should we desire to avoid hell? What makes hell so terrible? What's the opposite of what makes the kingdom of heaven so wonderful? Look at 2 Thessalonians 1.9. It says it this way, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Do you hear how that verse describes the punishment of hell? Away from the presence and glory of the Lord. Away from the Lord. You see, the horror of hell is the utter absence of the presence of God. The horror of hell is that hell represents the final and eternal separation from God of those who were made by God and for God. This is what will happen to the evil on Judgment Day. And here's why this is what will happen to them. Why are those who are evil going to suffer this punishment? And here's what we realize through this parable. It's because of the uncompromising standard of the kingdom of God. You see, when we think about the kingdom, we think about the hope of the kingdom, what what we are hoping for is nothing less than a perfect world. A perfect world. A sinless world world, a righteous world. God is holy and righteous and good and his kingdom will be untouched by any evil whatsoever. The only ones then who can be included in his kingdom are those who are righteous. This is the uncompromising standard of the kingdom of God. You must be righteous to be a part of it. If anyone unrighteous is in the kingdom, then it's no longer the perfect world anymore. And so we we hope for the kingdom of God, we long for the kingdom of God, we long for a perfect world, don't we? We long for it. But the standard is that no one evil can be a part of it. 
And here, church, we should feel a great tension in our hearts because of these two parables. The first set of parables teaches us that God's kingdom is an incomparable treasure that's worth losing everything to gain. If we hear and believe that first parable, then there's nothing we should want more than to be in God's kingdom. But the second parable teaches us that righteousness is God's uncompromising standard for inclusion in this kingdom. And here's the problem. All of us have sinned. All of us are evil. All of us deserve the punishment of hell. And so these parables lead us to ask this question. How can evil people like us gain the incomparable treasure of the kingdom? How can evil people like us gain the incomparable treasure of the kingdom if we are evil? And this leads us to the final thing we need to see today, the unbelievable sacrifice of the king. The unbelievable sacrifice of the king. This final point is not based on the parables themselves, but it's based on the one giving these parables. Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, the Savior King, he's the one speaking these parables. How can sinners like us gain the incomparable treasure of the kingdom? Well, if we pan out from chapter 13 in Matthew, we consider the entire book, here's the answer. Here's how the king himself gives up everything to bring sinners into his kingdom. The king himself gives up everything to bring sinners into his kingdom. This man, Jesus, who was teaching these parables was not only a man. No, before he was the man, Jesus, he was the Son of God from all eternity. And yet, here's what he did. The eternal Son of God left heaven itself. He left heaven itself, and he took on humanity. He entered the womb of a young virgin. The Son of God incarnate was born in the humblest of ways as a baby boy, given the name Jesus, and then fully God, yet fully man, Jesus became the only man to ever meet the uncompromising standard of righteousness that's required to be included in God's kingdom. He's the only one who never sinned, the only one who never had an evil action, word, or thought. He lived a perfectly righteous life. Jesus is the only one who would be sorted into the righteous category on that day. He's the only one who would, who would go to the, to the container that is good fish. Everyone else, the bad fish. We can't use that one. He's the only one. And yet, Jesus then died the death that sinners deserve to die. Having given up heaven, he went even lower and he gave up his life itself. He suffered and died on the cross in the place of sinful man. He willingly laid, laid down his life and then rose again. Why? To purchase us. To purchase us for himself. And listen, there's nothing about us. We, we are not a pearl of immense value. We are not a treasure that's worth losing everything for. We are sinners. We are rebels. And yet, in his love and by his grace, he said, I'm going to make them my treasured possession. I'm going to sell everything I have and make you mine. And I'm going to delight in you. And you're going to be my treasure forever. This is what led him to die on the cross for us, to bring us with him into his kingdom, where we are his inheritance now. He left all he had in heaven as the Son of God, then he gave up his life itself as the Son of Man to bear the, 
judgment of God towards sinners. This is the unbelievable sacrifice of the king. This is the only way for sinners to gain the incomparable treasure of the kingdom. Only through the righteous life and sacrificial death of the king. Now we need to ask this question, what must we do to receive the benefits of this unbelievable sacrifice? How, how, can, we, how can we gain what Christ has done for us? What the king has done for us? And this brings us to the main idea of this morning's passage. All of this, now let's put it all together. Here's the main idea this morning. Whoever surrenders everything in order to gain Christ as their treasure will be included in God's kingdom. Whoever surrenders everything in order to gain Christ as their treasure will be included in God's kingdom. Let's think again about the first two parables a little more. It's important to see in the parable of the treasure and the, and the pearl that the men could not gain the treasure without selling all they had. The men could not gain it without selling all that they had. And this not only underscores the value of the kingdom, it reminds us of the cost of discipleship. No one gains the kingdom of God without surrendering everything they have on earth for the sake of the kingdom. The only way to gain the incomparable treasure of God's kingdom is to let go of every treasure on earth. If we are going to gain Christ, we must lose everything else. Surrendering everything is not optional. Surrendering everything is not optional but whoever surrenders everything to gain Christ as their treasure will be included in God's kingdom. Now someone might say, what do you mean we need to surrender everything? Doesn't the Bible say that we must simply believe in order to be saved? Aren't we saved by faith? What do you mean we have to surrender everything to be saved? But let me ask in response, what are we to believe? What are we believing? We're to believe what the man who found the treasure believed. We're to believe what the man who found the pearl believed. We're to believe not only that Jesus died and rose again, and forgiveness is in him alone. We're to believe that his death and resurrection and forgiveness are good news precisely because it's the way that we gain him. We're to believe that Jesus is the greatest treasure. We're to believe that in Christ we have found an incomparable treasure that we cannot walk away from. And this belief leads us then to forsake all other unworthy treasures that we've ever devoted ourselves to. That's what we're believing. We're believing not just in what he's done for us, but that through that work we get him. He's the treasure of God's kingdom. Listen to how the Apostle Paul described his testimony in Philippians 3, 8, and 9. He said, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ for his sake, in order that I may gain Christ. This is the mentality of saving faith. It compels us to surrender every other treasure. If we believe that Christ is this valuable, then there is no sacrifice we should be unwilling to make to gain him. If we believe that God is this satisfying, then we would gladly surrender everything we have in order to enjoy his presence. 
and anything in our lives that we see is keeping us from experiencing this treasure more, we surrender it. Because Jesus is so much better than anything else. We surrender our allegiance to our sinful desires and actions. We surrender our ambitions for success and security and comfort. We surrender our freedom of how we spend our time and how we spend our money. We surrender our own false kinship over our own lives. We submit ourselves entirely to Christ as our Savior and our King and our treasure. You think about the, the two fields. You think about the pearls, what they represent. This man had to sell everything he had. This represented his life. This represented his work. This represented his, his whole purpose. He got rid of it all because he came under Christ's lordship. Christ was his king. Christ was his treasure. Listen, this morning you may be like the man in the field. Your life is good. And you didn't come this morning looking for treasure. Like maybe you're satisfied. Maybe you are just enjoying life a lot right now. And you did not come to church this morning thinking, I need to find a treasure. But you found one. You stumbled upon one today. At least you've heard that there is one. And now you have a decision to make. As you evaluate this treasure you've heard about, you need to decide, will you surrender everything in order to gain this treasure this morning? Maybe you weren't looking for it, but, but here it is. And you need to decide, is it worth it? Is it worth surrendering everything to gain this treasure that I wasn't even looking for? But here it is, by God's grace, here it is. Will you surrender everything in order to gain Christ this morning? Others of you might be like the man searching for pearls. You have felt dissatisfied with your life, and you have been looking for a treasure. You've been looking for true value, true meaning, true joy. And again, today God is revealing to you the pearl of all pearls, and you need to make the same decision. Will you surrender everything in order to gain this treasure? Will you surrender everything this morning in order to gain eternal life with Christ in his kingdom? All that you are and all that you have. And as you consider this, church, consider this quote from the missionary martyr Jim Elliott. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Before you decide to hold on to treasures here on earth, understand judgment's coming, and you cannot take any of it with you. But you can surrender all of it now. And you can make the king who left heaven your treasure today, the king who laid down his life for you, your treasure this morning. And if you've done this, if you have made this decision, if Christ is your treasure, if you would say that this morning, then, then I call you to ask, what is keeping you from experiencing him even more? What treasures are in your life right now that you need to, to again say, no, I want Christ. Christ is better than these things. And I'm going to give them up so I can experience more of his goodness in my life today. Surrender to him this morning. And let's know that in Christ we have an incomparable treasure.